0: Welcome to the Bylines Network podcast, an audio accompaniment to our growing family of regional bylines publications where progressive, high-quality citizen journalism speaks truth to power without fear or favour.
1: This is the second episode in our four-part series looking at the local elections, which are coming up across the country on May 6th. This week, we're asking the question, how democratic are the UK elections?
2: help us answer this we're joined by two very special guests today. We've got Abby Jones from Manchester Make Votes Matter and also Tom Brake the director of Unlock Democracy. So in terms of having a very unrepresentative democracy we talk a lot about how first past the post distorts results in general elections but it's even worse at the local level. So taking a completely random example here looking at the East Ecclesfield Ward in Sheffield. In 2019 the lead-down candidate was elected with about 31% of the vote. So 70% of people voted against the actual elected candidate, and then their, their will wasn't heard. Um, and then you look at places like Doncaster. So in 2017, Labour got 37.5% of the vote and then 78% of the seats. Similarly, the Conservatives got about 24% of the vote, 12% of the seats, And then some parties like UKIP, which got 14%, didn't get any seats at all. So we've got a really unrepresentative system at this level, which is going to potentially lead in similar ways. We talk a lot about how our general election system isn't very democratic, but we rarely talk about how it impacts our local elections. Here to talk to us a little bit more about that is Abby Jones from Make Votes Matter Manchester.
0: So thank you very much for joining us. Abby Jones of Make Votes Matter Manchester. So we're talking obviously mostly about the local elections, which are coming up on uh, May 6th. Maybe you could just outline for our listeners what Make Votes Matter is um, and what it does, and also how you got involved and how and when you you founded the Manchester group and what you've been doing um, since you founded it. Sure thing. Well, thanks so much for
3: having me over, Katrina. This is this is super exciting. I love talking about uh, PR and, and Make Votes Matter. Uh, so Make Votes Matter is a cross-party organisation uh, campaigning to change the voting system in the House of Commons to a fairer system with proportional representation, or PR. Um, It is a national organization, but a lot of its outreach to the public happens through these local groups that are run by keen volunteers, and that is how I I came to be involved. I'm one of the the keen volunteers that runs the the Manchester local group. I'd I'd come across this idea of a fairer voting system probably in in about 2017, uh, when Make Votes Matter put out this really simple graphic uh, that showed on one side, the, the breakdown of MPs after the 2015 general election. For example, 51% of MPs uh, were Conservative. And next to that showed the breakdown of how people actually voted in the same election, showing that only 37% of people had had voted for Conservative. And that blew my tiny mind. I, I wasn't that political at the time, and it, it hadn't occurred to me, to young me, uh, that a party could get, 51% of, of the seats uh, when only 37% of people voted for them. That made zero sense to me uh, because that would have to mean, surely, that some votes are worth more than others. Right. So I started following Make Votes Matter at that point to, to learn more. And um, in spring of 2020, fast forward, uh, when I suddenly found myself with some spare time, <laughs> as did a lot of us, Um, I started getting more involved and that's when I I reached out to other interested folks in the area and that is how the Manchester local group formed. And between us, there are supporters of of political parties sort of right across the spectrum, uh,
0: as well as those who don't support any of the current uh, parties. Uh, I think, I mean, given that we're trying to focus on the local elections, but it would be kind of nice to do a bit of a rundown of, of the different types of proportional representation anyway, if you don't mind.
3: Certainly, yeah. Um, There are a few, yeah, I should, probably before I start, should make that clear, like you say, um, that when I talk about proportional representation, and when Make Votes Matter talks about proportional representation, we're not advocating for a, a specific system. There are many types of voting system. Some of them are proportional and fall under that umbrella, and some of them aren't. And, So to just be a a proportionally representative system, all all that that means is that the number of seats that a party gets in an election uh, roughly matches the proportion of votes that it got. So if a party gets 40% of the vote, they get 40% of the seats, which, as I mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, talking about my realisation uh, that our current v- first-past-the-post system doesn't do that. It doesn't ensure that at all. Right. Um, so a few systems that do do that, uh, for example, there is uh, the L- List PR, uh, which was the one that was that is used and, and was used by us in the European Parliament elections, um, as well as quite a lot of uh western europe the netherlands spain most of the nordic countries um is probably the most popular of the uh, the most used of of the pr systems and how that works is rather than electing one person per area as we do in our constituencies, say uh in first past the post each area imagine it as being a lot bigger and you, instead you're electing a group of mps Um, in a bigger area that closely reflects the way that that area voted. So for the European elections, we voted in regions, in England at least. So where I am in the Northwest, for example, we could vote for eight uh, members of the European Parliament. And people voted for the party that they wanted and candidates from those different parties were sort of allocated those eight seats to roughly match the proportion of votes that the party got. So in the Northwest, I think that was three Brexit, two Labour, two Lib Dem, one Green. And that means that in each area, um, it is by definition uh, proportional. So that's one, one way to do it. Um, a, maybe a disadvantage of that system or a reason that some people don't like that one um, is that you're often uh, voting for a, a party, not a person. Uh, and people sometimes pre- often prefer to vote for, they feel like extra accountability that you're voting for a, a candidate, a person that you believe in. Um, similarly uh, with this, the list system, because the areas are so big, you don't necessarily have that strong constituency link. There isn't you know one person there to represent you and your area, your community. And it, of course, when, when you're dealing with parties like that, it's not great for anyone who's running for an independent. So there's some of the cons, but obviously, big pro is that it's proportional and that your vote definitely counts. Um, Another one is uh, mixed member proportional, MMP, also called the top-up system. And that is used in um, Germany and in New Zealand, uh, as of fairly recently, and in the Scotland and Wales parliaments. And it's called a top-up system because voters have uh, two ballots, essentially. One one of them is for a local constituency and it works pretty much just like our current first past the post system does. So there's one person in your, your local area, represents you, everybody does that and you, you kind of get, you know, your first past the post results. Um, but people also have a second ballot and that counts nationally towards a set number of additional MPs that are there to keep things proportional. So what happens is that you have your two votes they look at the breakdown of the constituency votes, and again, that would look kind of just like our first-past-the-post one. And then they top up the number of MPs in each party using the those sort of second votes. Um, they, they pull in people from each party until the overall spread of MPs matches what the overall um, proportion
0: of votes they got sort of nationally. And that right, way, right, um, got it so, so in fact, that would mean there'd be a sort of averaging out, so each m p would have been elected by around say thirty thousand people rather than at the moment, I think the astonishing contrast was I think in that chart that that you saw um I think it's the s m p fare the best they get they only need about twenty five thousand and the green party it was close to a million it's like this. Um, But of course, those votes go nowhere. So in that in the system you're just describing, I guess they could be, they would be taken and some votes from a neighbouring constituency would be topped. That's right. Yeah. So even if form another. Yeah, no, I get it Yeah.
3: Even if you're in a very a very safe seat for a party that you, that isn't the one that you'd, you'd want to vote for. Right, which um, a lot of seats around here are, yeah. Absolutely, yeah, we can definitely go into sort of safe versus uh, marginal seats uh, at some point. But yeah, so even if you're in a very safe seat, um, you know that your vote still counts, even if it doesn't count in the constituency, it will still count to the national uh, average. And therefore, you can, with some with much more confidence, vote for, say, a smaller party, say say like Green, if if Green doesn't stand a chance in your constituency, say you can still vote for them, and that will still count towards the overall uh, makeup
0: of the. Uh, what about the sing? Is it the single transferable vote? That's the one we hear a lot about. Is that what they use in Scotland, or is that that one? Um,
3: they do use, uh, I think, in part. I can't remember whether it's the local or the. I think there's. Some part of Scotland that needs to that uses AMS, the top-up system that I just described. I think is for the nationals, and SDV for other elements of it. Uh, SDV is used in the Republic of Ireland. Uh, they they've been using um, that since 1920, since they since sort of independence in Ireland, wow. um, and in fact they've had two referendums since then, uh, saying should we abolish STV single transferable vote and switch to first past the post and both times there has been a resounding no we we're, we're good let's let's keep this one that we have this is working for us very well so STV um is probably I always get nervous trying to explain this one verbally because it's probably the one of the more complicated ones and it, I can definitely recommend some great resources of YouTube videos that explain it very well with a couple of charts but I'll do my best to, to say it verbally. Um, so a single transferable vote um, works by instead of one person representing a smaller area like in first past the post you instead have a, a bigger area and vote for a small team of of representatives, maybe four or five, depends on how big the area is. Uh, And instead of ticking one box um, on your ballot paper, voters instead rank their chosen candidates. So the person who you, you know, your first choice, you put a number one next to their name and and so go go down the list. And those preferences are taking into account uh, to choose candidates that reflect people's first choice. And then if needed, second and third choice, so that those four to five candidates that you select, for example, broadly reflect what everybody wanted. And that would stop a situation like you uh, like you said, where there's, you know, um, really it's neck and neck and there's only one winner, even though in your constituency, you describe essentially the same number of votes, more or less. In this way, there is someone in your area who you wanted, whether they were your first or, or second choice, perhaps. Oh, yeah. um, but everybody has somebody in their local area that they uh that they feel represents them. Um you get to keep that constituency link, of course, and you're voting for a candidate for a person, not a not a party. So a lot of people
0: maybe that's a, a pro uh, of, of STV against say something like party list systems. Brilliant. And and actually it's interesting. I mean one of the things that struck me when I found out it um, <clears throat> is that there are, in fact, only two countries in the whole of Europe that use the first past the post system, aren't there? Still, that's right.
3: Yep, there is us and Belarus, <laughs> <Yes>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> which it sort of says it all, really.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, real, real icon of democracy there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's um and
0: it, yeah it's really it's, good uh, club to be in say so it seems in in, that, in the general elections it actually funnily enough favours at the moment the Scottish National Party above all others but only within Scotland of course because that's the only place they run but in the rest of the UK it, it heavily favours the conservatives and then it also does favour other bigger parties doesn't it so And it it reminds me of everyone's confusion over the electoral college system in the States when we were all glued to the election back there back in November. Um, There's some similarities there that you can you can win the popular vote by millions and still lose the election just doesn't seem right
3: um yeah that's happened in the UK um I know that that like it, it, there was a lot of eyes glued to the screen on as to whether that was going to happen in in the US but that's actually happened in the UK twice um in since 19 I think 1951 Has it? uh yeah I believe in 51 Labour got more votes than Conservative but Conservative got the most seats uh and again in 74 four, I want to say. Uh, Sometime in the mid-70s, Conservative got most votes, but Labour got the most seats. And that's, in fact, the main reason why New Zealand had their referendum to switch from first-past-the-post to a proportional system, because that happened to them twice in a row. (laughs) They've had a proportional system since year 96. I think they had the referendum in 1992 as to whether they would keep first-past-the-post or switch to a proportional system, and then And and obviously, they they voted for a proportional system, and it was decided that they would use uh, the mixed member proportional. So that's the top up one that we were just talking about. And then so that was 96. And then about 15 years later, they had another referendum in 2011 just to check in with the people and say, say is this, this still working for you? Do you still want to keep doing this? Or should right. we switch which back? Is, which is very democratic. Very democratic. And everybody, well, not everybody, but the overall
0: the, the country voted. Yeah, yeah, this is, this is working for us. Let's keep this. Right. One of the things that's been talked about recently, of course, is, and I hadn't realised this, but the, the mayoral races, as in the ones, as Rachel last week clarified they um there are different types of mayor but the ones like in manchester the big city mayor like andy burnham who has a lot of responsibility and it's a it's a straight that isn't first past the post right you're just voting for who you want as a candidate yes yeah. that is first past. so what is that system
3: it's that system it's a tricky in between one i can see why it's, oh, it's confusing okay. it's so it's not a proportional system per se um but it's not first past the post either it's called the supplementary system um so in it uh voters can have choose their first and second choice candidate. so it's not like you can rank all of them but you can you can choose your first and your second choice now that doesn't mean that they get two votes is what what happens is that they first they count all of the the first choice votes and if one candidate has more than 50 percent of all those votes then we're done they win and it works exactly like first past the post election so we used to but in case that doesn't happen there is a, a fail safe say um for example since we're making all my examples manchester based uh, say uh a Labour candidate gets 40 percent of the first choice votes. And for example, the Conservative candidate gets maybe like 38 percent and the rest of other parties. In this scenario, no one has the support of most of the voters. Um, So what happens is the other candidates that aren't in the running from those top two are eliminated. And for anyone who voted for them, we discount their first choice for the eliminated candidate and look at their second choice. And if yeah. they had Labour or Conservative for their second choice, then these are counted instead of that first vote for, for the eliminated candidate. Oh, and so the outcome kind of looks the same as first past the post in that there is one candidate winner at the end. Uh, but the only yeah. difference is through this method, you can be certain that the person elected has the support of most of the voters, whether through it's their, through their first or second choice.
0: Oh, thank you for explaining yeah. that. It's very interesting. And the other interesting about that is the reason it's been in the news a bit is that I understand that the current Johnson Conservative government are looking at abolishing it. Is that right? That would be correct. Um, yeah, uh, they. I think it was in
3: their uh, manifesto that they support uh first past the post um and therefore i guess it's in their sort of mandate that they could um they could abolish it they could change it without having a, a
0: referendum or any other kind of right vote on it and interestingly it it would it would also give them again an advantage like they are the big winners nationally under first past the post aren't they both locally and it, um in general elections I, be, I believe that's right they, it's, it's sort of yeah. weird as to why that
3: happens I know it's not super clear um so okay. I guess what why does it happen that the um that there is this sort of bias uh towards the conservatives is because systematically first worldwide this is not just a UK thing systems like first past the post have this sort of right wing bias that on average produce parliaments that are more right wing than their voters. So in the UK, for example, in 19 out of the last 20 general elections, most people have voted to the left of the Conservatives each time. Um, Whether that for any of the sort of left wing parties, yet 60% of these elections resulted in a Conservative government. And that doesn't really add up. And that's because, in the UK at least, due to under-representation of left-wing votes that sort of pile up in urban areas. So what I mean by that is, say, around the world, votes for left-wing parties pile up in these huge majorities in, in urban industrial areas like Manchester, while right-wing votes tend to be more spread out across the suburban and, and rural areas and therefore can win more seats with the same amount of votes. So as a tiny case study in, in Manchester in, in 2019, Labour had a majority of more than 30,000 votes in the city
0: centre constituency. A majority, a that is the number of votes they got, that is the difference between the Labour. That, exactly, so yeah, in Manchester Gorton, I believe it
3: was, that, like you say, it's not, they didn't get 30,000 votes, they got 30,000 more votes than the runner-up, And that majority is more than all of the Conservative majorities in the Greater Manchester area combined, and would have, in a more sort of proportional system perhaps, resulted in an extra Labour MP. That's enough votes for another MP. Um, But in the words of Gimli from Lord of the Rings, that only counts as one in a first-past-the-post
0: system. Well, I think it's probably going to be a different show to talk more about the boundary gerrymandering that... Potentially oh, yeah, we can run about that for another hour. Yeah, yeah. time. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today. That's been extremely helpful and enlightening, actually. And um, I'm so glad. Thank you for having me. This is I'm
3: really excited to hear about where you where you go with this. And I'm so glad you had a great time with with Rachel last week and I'm going to keep learning more as I just totally failed at that quiz in, in last week's episode <laughs> so I'm just going to have to, to well, stick
0: around we'll definitely have you back uh, if you come, <laughs> um, down the line when we talk about other fun aspects of our work in progress shall we say in terms of <laughs> voting systems and general democracy that's situation. a very graceful way to describe <laughs> it A working progress of
3: the democracy <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: love it um brilliant thank you so much thank you um, thank you again to abby that was really interesting
2: and enlightening in addition to the system which is very unrepresentative we've also been having recent trials of voter id laws across the country Kerry, you've been doing a lot of reporting about the us and about democracy there could you talk to us a little bit about sort of the anti-democratic moves in the us and why that matters
1: yeah, that's right, Alex. I've been doing a lot of um, writing about the new voting restrictions in America. So, for example, to vote now, you have to have an ID with you. And the voting hours have also been reduced to about 10 to 5 p.m., which means that people with shift work find it will find it more difficult to vote. Um, they've also banned giving out food and drink while people are queuing to vote, which will affect um, poor communities and marginalized communities. And as we saw with the Trump-Biden election, where Biden won, they've um, increased the rhetoric around voter fraud. And so by people believing that elections are fraudulent or invalid, it means they're more likely to vote radically and therefore more one-sided right-wing laws may be passed in congress which will ultimately impact african americans poor people and other marginalized communities
2: so in 2019 voter trials were tried at the local elections um, 800 voters in total were turned away for not showing id which got up to about 0.7 percent in some areas so looking at for instance mid-sussex 78 voters got turned away and in three places in that county councillors won by fewer than 25 votes i.e the votes that got turned down could have made a difference in that election currently the electoral commission says that about three and a half million voters don't have access to the kind of identification that would be acceptable for a pollster and there may be a partisan slant to this about 57 percent of those who don't have a driving license vote labour about 27 percent of them vote conservative So there is the potential here for some sort of partisan bias. These plans have been condemned by civil rights groups in the US, including the highly influential American Civil Liberties Union. At the end of the day, though, the risk of voter fraud is pretty small. In 2017, only one person was convicted of trying to impersonate another voter. So if this is the case, then we have to ask, why is this happening? To help us answer some of these questions, we are now joined by Tom Brake. Tom is director of Unlock Democracy, a pro-democracy pressure group, and was the MP for Kosholton and Walton from 1997 until 2019. Thank you for joining us, Tom.
4: Thank you. A pleasure, Alex.
2: So we are trying to answer this essential question today of are our local elections democratic? And obviously this is a big area of interest for you, so we thought we'd kind of come to you for this. Well, it
4: depends, I suppose, what your definition of democratic is. So if your definition of uh, truly democratic elections is that people have a choice of candidates, there is no interference, perhaps no fraud taking place, then yes, our local elections are truly democratic. However, if your definition is slightly more extensive than that, in other words, when people vote for uh, particular parties, do they actually end up having their views represented in terms of who gets elected? Or, for instance, do they elect people who who have the power to then take action on their behalf? I would question whether, in fact, we have local elections that are truly democratic.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I was actually looking at Doncaster the other day, um, 2017, I think Labour got 37% of the vote, um, got about 78% of the seats, and it's not necessarily the best system. But obviously, you've been doing a lot of work with this recently. You released a report the other day, actually, um, local government in England, 40 years of decline, looking at some of those issues. Could you talk a little bit about what's in that report and what you found out about local government, local democracy in that process?
4: Sure. Well, I suppose the the fundamental finding from the report, as the title suggests, is that over the last 40 years at least, and this has happened under successive governments, it hasn't been just one particular political party in government that has done this, local uh, councils have seen their powers diminished. And this is reflected in a number of ways. So for instance, Uh, there was a period when councils were the main providers of affordable housing Uh, and that was changed and the argument then was that local councils were far too large and distant from those who needed affordable housing and it was much better to break it up and for instance hand over those responsibilities to housing associations. Now of course what's happened is that housing associations have become very large and unlike when a local authority provides housing housing associations now are not really based in any particular area. So you can have a housing provider who's providing housing both at one end of the country and another and I I think tenants would argue that their ability to influence uh, the provision of affordable housing through a local authority where they they know who the councillors are and they can hold them to account is far far greater than it is trying to hold to account a housing association uh, who are not elected and whose headquarters may be based 150 miles away from where the tenant lives. Our report also highlights that uh, what we've seen in the UK, just in terms of the number of councillors who are elected, that number is shrinking year on year. The UK has fewer councillors uh, representing local residents than any other country in Europe. And also the degree of autonomy or independence that uh, the UK has in terms of its local government independence is uh, has far less autonomy than virtually any other European Union country where local councils have more powers and more responsibilities and less interference from central government. What is very clear in this report is that the more autonomous or the more independent local councils are across Europe the more people trust them. So we're in the opposite position where our councils have very little autonomy and they're less trusted.
2: And it's been a huge change, as you say. It's forty years of decline, and obviously you have tremendous experience here because you have been a councillor up until nineteen ninety. Am I right on that? And then obviously an MP from ninety seven until two thousand and nineteen. So I guess over that journey, how have you seen the role of councillor change from the nineties to now?
4: Yeah, I had two periods as a councillor. Okay. So I was both a councillor in London Borough of Hackney and also then in the London Borough of Sutton, and then a member of Parliament, as you said. And I mean, I've always had close connections with the local authority anyway. In my constituency office, I often had working for me people who happened also to be local councillors on Sutton Council. So I've already had a, always had a strong connection. And my wife works for a local authority as well. So I've been well plugged into this network. And what I've seen is that another change that has made a fundamental difference is the The cabinet system where one councillor, in effect, with a very small group of councillors around them, uh, is taking decisions, leaving the other councillors as backbenchers who, if they're lucky, might find out about uh, things that the cabinet are doing. And if they're lucky, they might get to vote on the issues the cabinet are deciding. Uh, Very often, those backbench councillors, in effect, become second tier citizens uh, in their ability to to hold their own peers uh, accountable. And this situation is exacerbated in scenarios where, as we saw in Liverpool, where in fact you have a mayor uh, who really has a group of councillors who are perhaps not quite doing the job of scrutinising that they should. I think the mayoral role or the mayoral model is one that really makes scrutiny of any mayor's activities much, much more difficult than the previous uh, council committee structure where what would happen is that yes, uh, committees or subcommittees of councillors would discuss things. They would then come up with a recommendation that was then brought before the whole of the council and all of the councillors of all political parties were then party to the debates and voted on the, the key decisions that the council took. And I think from a democratic point of view, that is healthier than those decisions being taken by a clique, uh, who often it is hard to, to hold to account.
2: And returning back to that issue of the local elections coming up, you've been doing some work recently as well on the electoral integrity bill that may be coming up. Do you think that this bill has some potential for good or do you think that it's just going to disenfranchise more voters or is it a bit difficult to say?
4: Obviously, we don't know. We we haven't got the bill yet, so we don't know what's going to be in it. But we have uh, had sort of advance notice of some of the things that we'd expect to be in it. And the most obvious one of those is this question of voter ID. And there is a worry there that this will mean that people who don't have identification, for instance, young people living at home perhaps haven't got a passport fewer young people are now taking the driving test, might not actually have a form of identification. There may be older people, for instance, who have never had a passport, um, uh, either never had a driving license or have had had to hand their driving license in after they reached a certain age, who again, might not have access to identification. And this might lead to some ugly scenes at polling stations where people turn up expecting to be able to vote. Um, but are turned away uh, because they don't have identification. Uh, What I want to hear from the government is is really what impact they think this will have on voter turnout. The experience in Northern Ireland when they introduced uh, voter ID uh, was that in all of the subsequent elections, there was a drop in turnout. Here, the government have said that there will not be a drop in voter turnout with the introduction of voter ID in our elections here. Well, I can't understand how they can make that assertion because the actual impact on Northern Ireland was a drop in voter turnout in all of the elections that took place afterwards. I'd much prefer the government to invest in a known problem, which is why are 9 million people not on the voting register, to get many more of them registered so they can take part in elections, That would be, in my view, a good use of of government money and effort, rather than a, a policy which, frankly, is going to depress voter turnout and doesn't really seem to be being introduced for any particular reason. There are suspicions, of course, about the reasons and this is something that is a very, very live topic in the US at the moment, yeah. where there are a number of cases fighting proposals that are similar, which they believe in the US would have the effect of depressing votes turnout, particularly amongst minority voters.
2: And another policy which has been discussed quite a lot recently has been potentially getting rid of the supplementary vote system for uh, metro mayors, for police and crime commissioners. Obviously, SV isn't perfect, but do you think that we should at least be sticking to it and trying to expand that sort of vote switching? Because of course you were in government in the coalition when AV was big on the agenda and tried to get past via referendum. So do you think we should be trying to at least go for those sorts of forms of voting rather than trying to make it less representative?
4: There's no other country in Europe that uses first-past-the-post for uh, Westminster-style elections. It depresses me that in the UK, We are moving towards reinforcing the position of first past the post when clearly what it does is it ends up electing people on a, in most cases, on a minority of the vote. I'm not sure that that is very healthy, a very healthy democracy. uh, And I don't quite understand. And clearly, I'm afraid the government have made a, a political calculation that this is to their advantage i can't see why else they would be doing it i'm not aware there was any demand to change the system from anywhere there's not a groundswell of opinion that says you know we want first past the post what what the political system should do our, our voting system should do is work to the advantage of the voters so that the voters get elected representation as close to their views represented as possible And first past the post clearly does the exact opposite. And rightly, other countries uh, in Europe uh, have moved away from that system. We seem to be the only country that believes that this is the way forward.
2: And then to sort of go to that billion dollar question of, well, what can we do if the government isn't willing to legislate to make things more democratic? What avenues, what levers can we pull to try to make these local elections more democratic?
4: The first thing that we have done uh, as an organisation, Unlock Democracy, on the back of this research is that we have launched a campaign which is targeted at council leaders and council candidates, which would ask them to make a very simple pledge, and that is that if they are elected to a local council, doesn't matter where, doesn't matter for which party, if they are elected, they will campaign to ensure that local councils are more independent, of central government, that they have more financial autonomy and they will support the idea of an inquiry into the relationship between local government and central government. One step that we think could make a major difference is if this relationship were in effect uh, written into almost constitutional law, there are ways that you could do this, that would mean that in future A uh, another government, central government, couldn't simply say to local councils, Well, actually, we don't think you should have responsibility for social care anymore, we're just going to take it away from you. Tough. That actually, you would have written into law that if the relationship was going to change between local councils and central government, that would have to be a process of discussion and negotiation, but also if it was a change on the scale of something that uh, in effect ripped major powers away from local authorities, that it would be subject to a two-thirds majority.
2: That's great. Thank you so much for your time, Tom. Thank you, Alex. Thank you so much to Tom Brake and Abby Jones for speaking with us this week. Be sure to tune in next week when we speak to people at various levels of local government about the upcoming vote
4: join me julian greenbank will not only will i be hosting but i will be talking to this webster swindon and wiltshire police and crime commissioner candidates
1: thank you to julian greenbank for editing and make sure to check us out on social media at bylinespod our music was voxel revolution by kevin McFowl. thanks
2: kevin